This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. Fly Racing has their new Formula S helmet on the market. The S means smart and contains a sensor that can automatically contact emergency services in the event of a crash. Check out flyracing.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, myself, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie are going to break down the world SBK season to come. And uh, Gordo, we're getting ready to head to the Iberian Peninsula, Jerez and Portimao for a week of testing, four days of testing. And there's a lot to take in ahead of the new season. Yeah, because there's a lot of new things, It's uh, which is wonderful to see. Um, so many rider changes, uh, upgraded bikes, new rules, you name it. I mean, you name it, we've got it. And it's going to be great to see it all for me personally for the first time. I didn't do any of the, the winter tests at the end of last year. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this and, and getting my feet under the table again. Yeah, looking forward to having you back on site for them as well, Gordo. It was strange being at the track last year and not having El Gordo there. And through the course of this season as well, Gordo, we're going to have Evo from Speed Week on the podcast as well. So Evo should be down at the Iberian tests as well. So I'm sure we'll get his insight during the course of those few days. But Gordo, when we look ahead to these four days of winter testing, I think it's probably fair to say that the biggest thing isn't an individual team, an individual rider. It's the overall health of the championship because we've got the all-new regulation package. And we talked about this in the Superbike Roundtable with Evo and Alex Raby on that call as well. But this is a massive winter for a lot of teams. There's big changes that are happening and we'll get our, our first chance really to see the impact of that now because at the November test, everyone was a little bit between 2023 and 2024, but now they're going to be full-on 2024 spec bikes ready for the new rigs. Yeah, I mean, that those few weeks since the last test and the end of the season are, are very important for the teams. They now We will see at these forthcoming two tests in Iberia uh, what they really will be racing because there's no great time to change anything, even if they're allowed to. And obviously, as we know, there's quite a lot of things in, in World Superbike that are kind of locked down, even under the new rules. So we've got the normal development you would have year on year. We've got a lot of changes in the background, personnel as well as technology. But the big technical changes have got to be done for these tests and readiness for these tests. Because very soon afterwards, they're going to be sticking all their stuff in crates and sending them to a flyaway in Australia. Which is another reason why World Superbike is always a bit interesting because we have such a early start compared to most people. And then, almost more importantly, we have not enough time to, go, to get the winter development done. Not being a prototype class helps that, but it's still a lot of changes that need to be taken over by people. Yeah, I've always thought, Gordo, that there is a change that probably needs to be made. Obviously, the regs over the last few years have been where everyone from the same manufacturer has to have the ability to purchase the same spec as the factory team. That's a great change. But I would like to see an official test at the end of the season, two days for all the manufacturers just with their factory riders to be able to nail in their spec a little bit of extra time because like if you look at it if you're Yamaha or you're Honda or you're Kawasaki and you're trying to claw back a little bit of time the tests are used to find that performance rather than to finalize the package as much as anything else so I'd nearly like a a couple of days that are a little bit less pressure filled and these are just free test days to allow you to just bring in new parts whatever it is 
and then finalize the spec of the machinery you're going to use next year. But it is difficult to fit that in. You mentioned there the early start for our schedule. That's in the middle of MotoGP winter testing when we go down to Phillip Island. So it is a situation where there's a minimal amount of time to be able to fit that in, especially after we finish the year so late. Yeah, and of course there's budgets as well. Um, you know, we all saved a bit of money because we didn't do two long hauls in the same next year. The team's more than anybody because they're paying 10, 20, 25 people to be away in those countries, more expensive hotels. They can't bring their own hospitalities. It's just much more expensive, travel and everything else, um, and a lot more time away. So, But budget is still the big thing. As well as time, there's budget. and It's okay for the manufacturers to do it, but the newer manufacturers and the manufacturers that qualify already get a bit more testing. So, you know, you can counterpoint it with that. Yeah, an extra six days for BMW and for Honda next season is obviously quite interesting whenever you've got Top Rack Rasgari Ogly on a BMW and suddenly you give yeah. him an extra six days testing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's gone down well in some quarters. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's been up to BMW to get the performance out of their bike over the last few years. They haven't done that. They've now got Top Rack and... Gordo, I thought one of the most interesting things for me over the course of the last few weeks has been, obviously, we see a lot of interviews from riders in the off-season. I thought one of the most telling comments came from Scott Redding when he said, Top Rack's already braking differently to everyone else in the BMW, riding it differently to everyone else, and he's just got something else compared to everyone else, and that's straight away in the BMW. Yeah, but we know what a talent he is and what he's learned over the last few years. Um, he was winning races on a privateer Kawasaki, which wasn't, you know, that was quite remarkable. Um, he was competing with the top riders early on. Okay, he wasn't consistent, but we've seen how talented he is. No one needs to know about that. And I'll, whatever the BMW is, he will get to 99% of the maximum of that right away. And then he'll probably move the whole bike on over the 100% that it is now what all the other riders think is the maximum they can do now, he would already, just through his approach his and his pure, pure talent, he'll be able to take that bike that bike to places that other people can't. Um, there are three mega riders in our championship, two plus one for a lot of people, but ultimately it is three, really three riders. Um, and the other riders are fantastic, don't get me wrong, I'm not slagging anybody, not, not even remotely, but Top Rack is one of those special riders. And he could lead the BMW in a direction that might help other riders and it might end up being a one-man band whereby he's the only one that can get the kind of results they're looking for regularly every weekend all year, which, given the resources that BMW are putting and have put into that project, is the, what we should be expecting by now. They should be in the vanguard as, as good as anybody else. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things, Gordo, that for me, obviously, I'm going to be excited to see Top Rack on the BM. Haven't seen it up to now. Wasn't down in Spain or Portugal in December when he was on the bike. And it's just going to be so interesting to see what he looks like on the bike. We've seen pictures. We've seen some video. But uh, to actually get down to turn six at Hareth for the opening day and just see what he's like on the brakes there, it's going to be interesting. Well, I mean, as we know, it would be entertaining watching Top Rack in a scooter especially when he rides through someone else's press conference at Donington on the back <laughs> wheel, as he, as he has done in the past. Um, but watching him on a full-blown bike, um, that he he needs a more powerful bike to, to keep up with Batista. Um, obviously, also needs a bike that works well enough in every other aspect. Um, if you can get one and two put together, he's going to make a lot more than three. He's going to make five and six. And it's fun watching him. You could watch, like watching certain rider, Kevin Schwantz, 
You can watch Kevin Swan's going around the track all day. It's all action. Doesn't need anybody else. And I think Toprak's one of those riders. He he, he just looks entertaining when he, the way he's going around. He's not a a hill with the guys. He's, he's all action, and and a lot of big long levers to move around. So it always looks more dramatic, you know. I think as well, Gordo. What's going to be interesting is to see how different he is now compared to when he jumped onto the Yamaha, because he's got so much more experience of just how good he is that he's got that total belief that he's the best rider in the world. And he'll take that to BMW. And when he moved from Kawasaki to Yamaha, he was moving from an independent bike to a factory team. There was a question mark of, is he good enough to make this step? And obviously he's answered those questions emphatically. But uh, for Top Rack now, the question is, are BMW good enough for Top Rack? And he's going to be out there getting absolutely everything out of that package. And the pressure's on on BMW. And that's going to be interesting with the new structures they have in place and the changes that we've seen at BMW. But the one thing that I think is for sure, we have four really good riders in the BMW. Top Rack obviously is a step apart from the other three. But there's nothing wrong with having Michael Vandermark, Scott Redding and Garrett Gerloff on your bike. You've got three real top class riders all of them can win races on any given day. Gerloff hasn't done it yet, but you're not going to be surprised if he does make that step. The end of last year, he became the top BMW rider. So he's going to go into this winter full of hope that he's going to be able to bring that step. Yeah, and it's, it is worth uh, underlining what you said there about the new structure, because what we've got is a new BMW team in lots of ways, because they've identified some issues or they simply realised that what they were doing wasn't quite good enough so they're having to change things. I'm as excited to see the team in operation and how they're all meshed together and speak to all the, the, the personnel changes and, and, and job changes. Um, because they, to me, they haven't really started any season fully ready. Every time they've brought something new, they haven't quite been 100% ready at the start of this next season. And if you're t- trying to mount a championship challenge or finishing the top, guaranteed finishing the top three, you need to be ready for every point from the beginning to the very end. It's as simple as that. Yeah, they've got no margin for error, Gordo. And now they've got all the pressure in the world. I think what is quite good, though, is you put Top Rack onto that bike at Phillip Island. There isn't an expectation he's immediately going to win like he did on the Yamaha because Top Rack and Phillip Island hasn't always been the best of tracks. And for BMW as well, it's not really the kind of track that you instantly associate with this is being a track that suits their bike. Yeah, because of all those long corners and a, a quite um, a lot of power towards the top end, even now, they've cleaned a lot of that up. So that's a good thing, but it's a very, very easy place to uh, overstretch your tyres if you've got an engine that you're having a little bit of, even a little bit of difficulty controlling via the throttle um, because it's, it's the hardest track for tyres. And that's not just because of cornering, that's because of power on cornering. When you go all that run through turn 11 and all the way around, that is a, that's what does the damage to the tyres at, at Phillip Island. Um, so yeah, it, there could be easier places to, to go for him. And he does, there's one, one thing about him is he still has favourite tracks and not favourite tracks, but we're talking about a bad day for, for Top Rack being second or third, you know? So if he can, if he can get himself sorted with every single racetrack in his own mind as an opportunity to win every without thinking, oh, maybe not go so well there. If there's a weakness in the guy's makeup, that's it. Yeah, and uh, I can sympathise with Top Rack for that because every time I look into my golf bag and I see my five iron, I always think, you know, maybe I don't want to hit this one. And everyone has that 
little element of doubt, even when you're a top rack and you know how good you can be, there's certain things around Phillip Island that just don't naturally suit him. But he has been able to win there. He's been able to qualify well there. He's been able to race well there. So I think that at the end of the day, top rack is now at that point where he's just really just getting to the the limit of himself as much as anything else. And he's just improving all the time. And as we're talking about Phillip Island, I'd like to throw the boomerang in that uh, when he rode the Yamaha for the first time, he won on it, didn't he? I've already mentioned that now, Gordo. I've mentioned that already. Uh, so uh, I'd like I'd like to underline that, double underline that. You know, when it, winning their first time blew everybody's socks off. But the one thing that is different now is Bautista's on the Ducati. And we've been able to see at Phillip Island, in the heat especially, he's just able to manage that tyre so well. So that's where it becomes really difficult because... The 2020 year, whenever Toprak jumped onto the Yamaha, we had seen Bautista move to the Honda. It was a typical Phillip Island race. If you think about all three races, I think there was two tenths of a second was the combined winning margin for all three races. We had slipstream battles across the line for each of them. So I think it was one of those traditional Phillip Island years, whereas I don't think 2024 is going to be one of those traditional ones. It's going to be up to Bautista to see if he's able to do what he's always been able to do there on the V4. Yeah, I agree. He's still the guy to beat. Um, we'll see how he is. He obviously had an injury in the last year. He's had two World Championships back-to-back. He already, there was speculation at the beginning of the year that if he won this year's, last year's championship, he wouldn't come back. Um, yeah, we, we need to see how hungry Batista is. I have a feeling, um, and knowing the way he is and the way he was so merciless last year and every would try to win every race he possibly could, I think we might see more of the same. It's just how much the other guys can get closer to my opinion it does kind of bring us into one of the big talking points coming into the winter and into the early rounds of next year Gordo because what did Ducati do next if Alvaro does retire and he could well retire as a triple world superbike champion he could well retire as you know statistically one of those all-time greats but if he leaves what did Ducati do because obviously they've got a lot of good riders on their bike for next season they've got Bulaga the super sport world champion stepping on as Bautista's teammate they've got Petrucci a former factory rider for them in MotoGP a former race winner for them in MotoGP they've got you know a host of riders Andre Iannone coming back as well what's he going to be able to do Sam Lowe's coming over from Moto2 but one that's been an interesting topic for a lot of people has been what happens with Jack Miller in MotoGP I mentioned that in last week's Paddock Pass podcast when I said that there there has been talk about what happens if Pedro Acosta moves on to the factory KTM. Where does that leave Miller? He's got a little daughter now. Is he looking to scale back his racing? He's already raced a superbike in the Aussie Championship and enjoyed it. Maybe he's a rider that Ducati are looking to say, maybe we bring him across from MotoGP as well. And, you know, he's a guy that won races for them as a factory rider in MotoGP. So he has those links already. Um. I think that depends a lot on where Miller sees himself in two, three, five years. End of the day, if he really doesn't think he's going to get a fair shake in MotoGP or another fair shake in MotoGP, any rider should be thinking about coming over to World Superbike if you're if you're that good, if you're a proven MotoGP winner. Because we've seen what the, they can do when they come to Superbike. A lot of them don't. It's not a universal tick. That usually happens more in Moto2, you know, from Moto2 riders to Supersport riders. But being a long-time MotoGP rider, support from factories almost all the way through, yeah, you you know, that's that's perfect credentials for coming over. But Ducati's got a lot of choices within themselves from MotoGP. And that's the big thing, just to squeeze that in there, is the most important thing is they, 
they have made a change in their backroom at the top level management of their whole racing structure. You know, that things have changed in the background for Ducati. So maybe that's going to bring on a bit of different thinking and maybe more crossover between the MotoGP and Superbike paddocks for them. Yeah, I think what's interesting for me is that obviously one of the things that's been talked a lot for Petrucci, for instance, is his size. And we saw that the Mizano round last year, he made a big step forward. He had had a test at Mizano before. They made big changes to the seat unit, to the weight distribution, sat him lower on the bike. He was using different fuel tanks, I think, as well. So they have to make a lot of adjustments to the bike to suit him and they also already have the comparison of what Petrucci and Miller were like as teammates in MotoGP Miller's smaller he was he was a great 125 in Moto3 rider it's easy to forget because it's so long ago but you know he had those credentials on the small bike like Bautista and then he's got this is his 10th season in MotoGP and he's ridden what Hondas, Ducatis, KTM so he's got a lot of experience and he's still young. You know, he was so young moving to MotoGP that doing 10 seasons still leaves him prime age to be able to move to World Superbikes. And then obviously the most important thing, Gordo, he started playing golf. Superbikes gives you more time for golfing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's another thing that people maybe outside don't realise because there's quite, there's so many MotoGP weekends now and tests and commitments. It's the biggest thing there is. So there's probably a lot more PR to be done by a, a rider who's not world champion than there is in Superbike. If you get a chance to be world champion in Superbike and literally have less work to do, uh, as many races, but less work to do, that must be an attractive prospect for some people. But it's not going to be an attractive prospect for somebody who still thinks that he's going to get the job done in OGP. So it's a, a lot of it's up to the rider. But realising at what stage of, you know what, I'm not going to be MotoGP champion is a question that all Grand Prix riders are going to have to face. There, there is a well-worn path to Superbike that gives you an opportunity to be a winning rider again. Um, if, if you know, Patrici looked over and look at, he's come over here, he's in a good team, you know, with another year of experience, he could be in, the, you know, way higher than he was last year and, and make a breakthrough win. Why not? He's on the bike to do it. Yeah, and it's one of those things as well, Gordo, that when you look at it, you've got five manufacturers in World Superbikes. So you've got 10 factory seats, 10 factory contracts. Some are obviously more appealing than others. But there is still that chance to be a factory rider. Locatelli shows you as well that for riders that come over from, he was obviously Moto2, but riders that come over from the Grand Prix paddock, you can actually give yourself a chance to be a factory rider here and have good results. Now, obviously, I think Locatelli's probably going to be an interesting an interesting rider to keep an eye on this year. We've got Jonathan Ray jumping onto the Yamaha as well. And then Locke needs to make that next step. He's been a really good, consistent rider, top five rider, pretty much all the way through his World Superbike career, which is very impressive to see consistency like that. But is he the guy that Yamaha need going forward as well? You know, or are they going to finally look to make a change? He's got a new crew chief in for this year, Tom O'Kane. I'm excited to see Tom back into a race engineer role because he's been test rider test uh, team role for Suzuki and Yamaha for a long time but now he gets the chance to come in and try and do something with Locatelli we saw that he had a really good influence on someone like Alessia Spagaro a few years ago maybe he can do the same for Locke and then just find that little bit that Locke needs and if he does that then Locke keeps his seat as well going forward well, the next best rider in World Superbike right now is is obviously Locatelli. When you look at the, the overall results, he might be in the right place to help him with that. Um, I can't imagine that the changes this year are going to make him many worse. Um, and you're bringing in a guy who's even more experienced than he's already 
previously experienced crew chief who was a former rider like him. So you, you're, you're, there's a different background approach because you've got a, a pure engineer behind him. Locatelli's the kind of rider who loves all that. You know, he really wants to know what's going on with the bike and everything else. If that can be turned into a positive thing and not a negative thing, where he's overthinking things and can tie himself in knots, and I'm sure Tom's wise enough to understand to, to stop that thing happening. Ultimately, this is his year. If he is on the same level as Jonathan or beating Jonathan, then there's always going to be hope. If Jonathan's in real race situations, beats Locatelli every single time by, you know, one second or, or more immediately, then you've got to, Locatelli's second half of his season has got to be perfect. Because otherwise you're thinking, well, okay, he's not the guy then. You know, with all these other things behind him and he doesn't beat Jonathan, even sometimes, then, you know, that's that's another possibility of maybe he's not the next guy. But as it stands, I think he's still got more potential to come out of him. I think one of the things that's quite interesting for me with Ray is we've seen from 2020 until last year. So we saw four years of him with Alex Lowe's and what was probably the most telling thing for me was there wasn't a big difference in them in terms of their ultimate pace. Their Super Bowl laps or their fastest laps in races were always pretty close, but Ray was just so relentless. So even though Ray's had so many pole positions over the years, that single lap pace still isn't that thing that sets him apart, but it's what he does in the races. It's what he does week in, week out. And that's where I think we'll really be able to see where Locatelli stacks up because You'd expect that over a single lap, he's going to be pretty close to Ray because he was very close to top rack last year. But what's it going to be like over the races? And this is where we get to see how good Locatelli is as well because we know how good top rack is. But, you know, it was a bit of, it's a different dynamic when you come in to join top rack's team. Now Ray's coming in, he's taking your crew chief, he's taking half your crew with him. And how are you going to react to it? I think that's going to be such an interesting dynamic all the way through the season. Yeah, I mean, that's as you say, what all we're talking about this year is changing uh, inside the paddock. And it's all those backroom things that are just as interesting. Maybe not to the, the general fan, but I think to anybody who wants to get a bit deeper into the sport, these things are just as fascinating as anything else. Um, and Johnny's got a good setup. Um, Johnny will be away from uh, from Perry, um, but he has had lots of different crew chiefs in the past. So having a new crew chief, actually one of his oldest pals, a former riding teammate, and a guy who's got lots of experience isn't going to hurt Jonathan, I don't think. And I think that's where it's really interesting that AP, obviously, Andrew Pitt, former teammate, friend for, what, 15 years. So that's going to be an easy one to transition into, you'd imagine. Yuri comes across from Kawasaki with him, so he's got his number one mechanic. And then you've got it where Andrew Pitt's crew comes across as well. So you've got the likes of, you know, the other mechanics with lots of experience on the Yamaha. We'll also have... um, Johnny's old electronics engineer working with him again. So again, it's another thing that's a positive. It's a lot of change, but the three key people for him remain the same. Now, obviously, he has to adapt to Olin's suspension rather than Showa, but you know Ray's not going to have too much of an issue with that, you'd imagine. So there are some changes he's going to have to adapt to, but having that core personnel around him that he already knows, loves, and respects... I think that's going to make a massive difference for him. And that's why immediately when you listen to what Johnny's had to say, he's adapted well to the bike, but he instantly feels at home at Yamaha as well. 
And Johnny needs that all through his career. When he's been happy with the people around about him, uh, he's generally happy. He's the kind of rider I said once, he kind of needs a hug all the time. But when he gets it, look at what he can do. I mean, it's quite amazing. The, you know, he, he does form a kind of cadre around him, um, which is a very wise thing to do. Some, he's basically amalgamating two groups of well-known people to him together. Um, and the only realistic ride he had, he couldn't get a Ducati ride, uh, we imagine. Um, I can't imagine he would have knocked one back if he did get it. Um, and ultimately, that is the background that he's got couldn't be better for him to start. Maybe if he brought Perry, but as you say, maybe a change of crew chief for the new bike, who knows the bike a lot better, is going to be a lot better than bringing a crew chief who's going to have to get used to that bike, however good he is. So, yeah, you, you can't see any dark patches there. And Johnny needs the support and love of the people around him. And that seems to already be in place. It's already there. So, and I think Johnny's capable of ending this year everybody's fighting against Batista. That's it. If you can beat Batista, you could be world champion. And I think as well, Phillip Island opening round of the year, it does suit the Yamaha. And now it's good. Well, it's always been a good track for Ray, even though he's talked about it being one of his tougher tracks. He's had a lot of race wins there, a lot of success. Second home for him, or maybe third home now behind uh, the house in Catalonia as well. Yeah. But uh, for Ray, this is probably an ideal place to make your debut. We're going to have... We always call it two days of testing at Phillip Island. It's two half days of testing. But you've got eight hours of track running to get everything ready. And then you really just build into the race week. So I think Phillip Island's a perfect opportunity for Ray to spring a bit of a surprise. Just because he is better at that track than Top Rack is. The Yamaha's good there. So maybe Ray's able to make that little bit of a step. Yeah, I mean, Johnny is as relaxed at Phillip Island as he is anyway in his own home. You know, his permanent home where he grew up. Because it's where his wife grew up. It's where his wife lives. They've got a place there and up the road. Um, he spent an awful lot of time in Australia. He loves the place. They love him. And he's got a, such a record there. You know, he's always there or thereabouts in Australia. He's had some tough times when he was on the Honda. I remember him leaving Phillip Island once saying, I just want to go home because he'd fallen off testing, racing multiple times on the Honda when it really wasn't working there. Um, but in general, it, Phillip Island's a great place for Jonathan. And because of the experience, that tyre thing, Johnny can adapt. We're always talking about Johnny's adaptability. That might be the difference when it comes to a real race because Phillip Island's all about tyres. So we've been talking a lot about setup and people and everything else. Johnny might be able to nurse his tyres around better to be in a podium position or a fighting for the win position at the end, even in his first real race on that bike. Let's go back to Bautista then as well, Gordo, before we move on to Kawasaki and Honda and what they need to do during the winter tests. You mentioned Bautista's injury at the end of last season. It obviously affected him at the MotoGP race at Sepang as well, which he, he raced in. But it must be a bit of a strange sensation for Bautista because he's not being talked about at all. And he's the double defending world champion. He's the guy that's yeah. won all those races. But it's almost like he's flying under the radar going into the season, which is ridiculous whenever we go to Phillip Island round one and he is instantly your favourite to win those races by, you know, seconds, not just a case of winning the hat-trick. You expect him to dominate there. Yeah, um, I think the problem is also because of the nature of the, the previous season, um, there's a lot of people kind of took again him just because he did so much winning, the way he was beating, the way he beat top rack in the last couple of races. You know, it, I think that's part of the problem is that there's, there's a little bit of... Success always breeds a, a degree of pushback. 
Um, and some people say he's got an unfair this and unfair that, etc. Fine. But he's still the guy to beat. I mean, there will be changes to the rules this year, but remember, they, as far as I can see, in the, they're going to get their revs back again. But they're going to put a bit more weight on. But on balance, if you told me you can have another 500 revs, which is going to be more than most people, um, but you're going to have to add 7 kilos to the lightest guy on the paddock, I might take that. I might have your hand off for that. I don't know if people are thinking that the, the weight thing's going to make a huge difference to people. I think giving Ducati back all the revs, and that's my understanding of what's going to happen, um, is going to be much more significant. Yeah, I think one of the things whenever you talk to engineers around the paddock, they've said that the the difference of the weight isn't going to make a difference. The difference of the revs will make a big difference. And that's where Bautista and Ducati, there's a reason that they were agreeing to make this change it's because it's not going to affect them that much they've done the maths and they understand that and look at the races last year top rack was right with Batista right at the end when those 500 revs were dropped so it was 250 and then another 250 they didn't really struggle with the 250 drop but all the engineers told me actually now the bike we can't make the bike as good as it could be we just can't do it because of gearing and everything else so that you know, that was part of the reason I think why Top Rack was there. Yeah, I don't think Bautista's going to get better going into the new season. No, no. But I think no, that no. the other Ducati riders will get better because they'll have a more adaptable package. And that's where the Heret and Portimao tests are going to be really interesting. Portimao in particular, because Bautista's always had such a significant advantage in Portimao compared to the other Ducatis. That's where it's going to be quite quite cool to see what the last sector looks like over the course of the full test. Is anyone able to find that time? Because it was in the last couple of corners that he was finding all of his lap time against Rinaldi. So that's going to be quite interesting to see. And then we'll be able to, to really gauge the effect of the new regs. And the one thing the new regs don't really address is the aerodynamic advantage. Because a lot of people, again, background people, engineers have been saying to me, the big, and even his teammate, uh, Ronaldi is even smaller and, and smaller across his shoulders and so on than Ronaldi was and Ronaldi said that was the biggest difference between him and Batista on the straight he said he's so aerodynamic and so small it's like there's no resistance so he said that's when you can tell so that's the weight yeah sure but the aerodynamic thing that's the same as last year compared to Petrucci or anybody else yeah and you know Batista has his advantages that come from his physical stature, the same way that other riders have disadvantages. But like we've seen with Top Rack, having the disadvantage of being that bigger guy, the taller guy, you know, you also find areas where you can make an improvement. It's easier for Top Rack to manhandle a bike. The BMW is one of the most physical bikes on the grid. When you talk to, you know, riders that have gone from a BMW, from a Ducati to a BMW across the board in America, BSB, you know, even World Endurance and uh, then in World Superbikes, they've all said that the toughest thing with the BMW is actually the high-speed change of the direction. Most is a good example of it because we have all those switchbacks and flip-flops at the start of the lap. That's where the BMW riders really struggle with the bike, whereas even a very small rider like Bautista, a, a flea on the dog as he's been compared to, he's able to really just flick that bike across one side to the other because the Ducati naturally handles well. That's where I think that with all the riders on the Ducati, it's going to be interesting to see what they say at uh, Portimao in particular because there are those physical changes of direction there. And we've got a lot of guys jumping onto the, the bike for the first time. Ianone, Lowe's, Bulaga. What are they going to say about that bike 
whenever they've got their first experience of somewhere like Portimao. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And the other interesting things, Gordo, just before we, we finish up this podcast, is Kawasaki and Honda. Let's talk quickly about them as well. Can Honda finally make the step? We're what, five years into this program as the official Team HRC throw in another year of Murawaki in 2019. They've made changes to the structure of the team. Leon Camier is out as the team manager. There's changes behind the scenes as well with different crew chiefs. This is a, a massive year for Honda, really. Yeah, they've they arrived to a great fanfare. It hasn't worked out. The COVID thing was a big problem at the beginning. When that was over, it was obvious the bike in full world super bike trim wasn't right. So they've tried some radical things to, to get it to work. It hasn't worked. They are bringing a new bike this year. It's quite it's quite similar, but it's also different. So I think they've now taken all the data and all the engineering expertise they've got, realised that they've got to build a bike to work on the Pirelli tyres, not just the Suzuka endurance racing tyres, which is at least as important for Honda as, as World Superbike is. Um if they have made those correct changes, this will be the year for them. Not to go out winning every weekend. I think they maybe don't have the riding lineup to do that. No disrespect to them. But none of those guys are proven in World Superbike to be... Oh, if only had a bike. No one's sitting there thinking, oh, we've got to sign Lacona, we've got to sign Vierke. But they're very, very good riders. There's no reason why they can't do a lot more uh, podium damage if that bike is working properly. It does all aspects of turning, which apparently was a big problem with the, the chassis, was every aspect of turning. Um, it had actually some very, very uh, big plus points in the, the process of turning, but it was also negated by other points, as they explained to me at the end of last year. So um, there's a lot of changes there, but they've already done a lot of changes. They have to make the right changes. They have to get the right people in. Some would argue that they already had two or three of the right people in and have just got rid of them. So there's another change that maybe maybe they needed to have another year with, with, with the same people behind the scenes to see if the new bike was actually really an improvement. But who knows? I am prepared for anything from Honda, from no improvement whatsoever to being podium regulars, maybe towards the end of the season when they get their head around the new bike. Yeah, I think that the rider lineup is the interesting one because Lekonas in particular came in with a lot of fanfare. And he hasn't delivered on it. Last year, Javi Vieira was the top Honda rider for big chunks of the season. Lekwona makes his mistakes. He's had his crashes. He's now into his third year. And this is where he really needs to make that step forward because otherwise he'll just be a rider that gets left behind. And that's always the, the risk for anyone. And it kind of, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at Honda. Like you said, you're not going to be surprised if Honda make a step backwards or a step forwards. But uh, they could do they could do anything next year. And it's just a question of what happens with the personnel, the resources and the bike development. And then Gordo as well for Kawasaki as well. Jonathan Ray's gone. Their margin for error is gone. And at the end of the day, even with Ray on the bike the last couple of years, it's been a real struggle. They only won what one race in the last 18 months. It's been very difficult for Kawasaki. But now they get to have a clean sheet of paper. They get to move on from the greatest of all time. All the pressure that comes from having Jonathan Ray in your bike, that's gone. You know, we know the Kawasaki's not the best bike on the grid. And we also know that they don't have the best rider on the grid like they had for a long time with Jonathan Ray. So for Kawasaki, they've got Alex Lowe's and Axel Bassani. Bassani struggled with the bike whenever he jumped onto it in November, knows that it's going to take him a long time to really get the most out of this package compared to the Ducati. But he's a factory rider now. 
and it's up to him to work with his crew chief and uh, try and make some steps. And the crew chiefs is the interesting one as well, Gordo, because we heard all the way through the Sykes versus Ray era that the big rivalry was actually between their crew chiefs, not the riders. And now one of the riders has switched crew chiefs. So Alex Lowe is going for Marcel to work with Reba. It's going to be interesting to see what sort of progress that makes as well. Yeah, there's enough changes in that setup as well. I think if we deal with the bike first, because of the changing rules, they're probably going to be able to initiate a few more changes to the bike that they, they were allowed to do in 2023, towards the end of 2023, but couldn't do. Now with the changing crankshaft weights and so on, um, and revs and so on, maybe they're going to have a... The Honda's a new bike. The Kawasaki might be a rejuvenated bike this year, a little bit. It's still the oldest bike there. It's still proved last year it was it's it's you know, it's just not as modern and, and race capable over a full race distance as the other ones are. Um so we'll see for the bike for the riders. I think this year for Bassani is going to be more about Bassani's career than any great expectation of results. It might take Bassani somewhere else if Kawasaki aren't that happy with them. It might take Bassani somewhere else if he feels, well, okay, I've learned a lot, but I can't get anywhere for the long term. So Bassani is, was the best available rider by the time Jonathan had decided he was going to go. That seems to be what it was. Um, for Alex, Alex, this is the biggest year of Alex's career. Because if Alex does fairly special things, then all the things we've spoken about already, background changes, the influence of Jonathan within a team and Alex being very much the second rider, as any rider would be with Jonathan and the team who's going to be the second rider. So this is a massive opportunity for Alex. It also is a massive challenge. And I think the first few races are very important for him. He needs to keep it wheels down. He needs to show improvement. He needs to get his head around the new tech. He needs to get the, the working relationship with Perry, I think, would be quite easy because... Of the nature, the way Perry goes around it, he's always inside the rider's head and heart, pushing, getting the best out of the rider, really, as well as the bike. Um, there's so many changes for Alex, considering he's going to be in the team for you know multiple years. So that, to me, is the most interesting thing. Bassani's interesting, obviously, but I think how Alex gets on is the is more the meat, and it shows where Kawasaki really are. Yeah, and I think it is true that the big thing he has to do is make sure he's able to finish all those races in the early rounds and then see where you're able to stack up. Gordo, just before we finish up, I just want to I want to list the independent riders to you, Gordo, because I think that just shows the depth that we have in the class. You've got Garrett Gerloff, Scott Redding, um, Petrucci, Lowe's, Rinaldi, Ian One, Taz McKenzie and Brad Ray, two former BSB champions. You've got Moto2 champions like Tito Rabash. You've got... Uh, Dom Yagadar and Remy Gardner, Super Sport and Moto2 World Champions, Moto E World Champion as well. Like the depth that we have, I, I left out Adam Nard in there, but uh, the depth that we have is Bradley absolutely Ray. incredible. I've mentioned, mentioned Brad, I said the two BSB champions, but uh, you, you have it where like that depth is just ludicrous, Gordo, really. Like when you look at every single rider on that grid, have proper credentials whether they've won grand prix they've won domestic championships they've been world champions there's absolutely nothing wrong with world superbikes now and it's only going to get stronger and stronger like i said some of those names from moto gp that we mentioned at the start of the show looking to come across in the future as well like world superbikes 12 rounds this year you'd imagine as uh, as we've always heard the, the goal is 13 or 14 rounds but 12 rounds all those riders 
and then your 10 factory riders. This is just ridiculously stacked. And I think it's one of those interesting things, Gordo, that when you think about when we brought in the triple the triple header and we brought in the reverse grids, when we brought in all these things, it was because the field wasn't strong. But now, like as I said, everyone on its great. I left Philip Earthlight was the other one, Moto 3 race winner, and I've forgotten about him. I think that just shows you just how strong this field is. Yeah, I mean, I've been around a little bit in World of Super and I've been following it um, since day one, writing about it and working around it from 93 and then going full-time there in 99. And yeah, this is one of the best grids I can remember. Not because it's got more superstars than any previous era. You've obviously got your Haggers and your Slights and your Fogarty's and a million names in the past. I'm not talking about that. There are Those guys are there, obviously, in the top three, four, five. But look at all the way down. Anybody has a bad day, they're stuffed. It's like, in a, in a different lower level, it's like MotoGP. Almost every rider's there because they deserve to be. This is the way World of Superbike should be all the time. All the time. It's only been finance and political change and technical change and so on that has altered that. Um, but this is where we, sh- we should have former BSB champions, top Moto America riders, Asian riders, we we should be having more Asian riders. We need to, you know, there's lots of things that could and should happen in in Superbike World Championship. But what can be controlled by the organisers and the and the people with the money in the championship is the field of riders we've got. They can't do anything about uh, where we go racing because we're asking people to pay us money for that. What can we do? Get the grid as good as it can be, and that is what has happened. Hook, crook, whether it's the individuals themselves, the organisers, the teams, the sponsors, nationality considerations. But you look at the quality of that field, and yeah, that is an impressive, impressive field. Bradley Ray, last year, finished 6th at Imola in one race. So his capabilities are top 6. That was his first year. He won't do that every week, but it's it's potentially he could do. Every, every one of those riders could have a very strong weekend. You can't tell me... That especially as he did quite well in the first test, Ian Ori's not going to be a force if he can keep his, uh, if he keep the focus and everything works in his way. All those teams going down through that field are all incredibly experienced now. The the you know the least experienced them is is the the second Honda team. So, you know, and that's got a British champion and a strong rider from Asia in it. You know, there is, there is no gap in this championship. I don't see anybody there that doesn't deserve to be there which is and that's the worst racing word that racing is deserved but yeah there's nothing there's no weakness there i can't wait to get to hereth and january 24th will be will be there ready to go and then we're straight into the season really because we've got so much coming up you've actually got something before then as well you're out to italy to ducati's event as well yeah, I believe so. I've been invited, so we'll see how that goes. Um, 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 it was a fantastic experience last year, and you also got to do a lot of uh, work and speak. Got to speak to all the riders, MotoGP and Superbike, which was a joy in itself to have the two championships together represented together. Um, obviously, because of all the success that Ducati had last year, and that's added to this year because they won Supersport as well. So it's kind of and and they're on Moto E, and they're going to be launching uh, detailed, you know, stuff from their motocross thing. They're moving into motocross now. Um, which is exciting. Uh, so yeah, that that's going to be that. That's all happening. One, two, three. The that launch and two tests. 
So I'm just trying to work out the final details and see if it's actually possible. Um, but yes, we're starting kind of with a bang. I wouldn't mind a couple of more days, a lot to do <laughs> before I go. However, um, yeah, it's the winter's been long enough. It's not a huge winter in Superbike, but it's long enough now. It's it's time for me to start trying. My wife's getting grousy at me. It's time to leave, you know. When, when's your first race? When's your first race, Gordon? Like, yes, dear, I'll be gone soon. Don't worry. Yeah, it, it's always the case during the season. Uh, you know, you could do it being home a little bit more. And then once you're actually home, it's a different story, Gordon. But uh, by the time this podcast comes out, Gordon, I'll have been to the Mark VDS launch. Evo will be going to Munich for the BMW launch. So uh, that, that's three of the big stories already covered before we get to Hareth and Portimao. And then we'll get into the tests as well. So it's going to be busy, busy, busy. But uh, it is going to be exciting to get ourselves started. We've got a lot of stuff planned during the course of the year as well on the Paddock Pass podcast. So keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast for that. Gordo, thanks for joining us. And uh, I can't wait to see you in a couple of days out in Spain. Cheers, mate. Looking forward to it myself. As ever, a big thank you to Renthal Street and to Fly Racing for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast. We'll be back next week.